Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, Natalie. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to have you on this show to celebrate the release of this book that you edited and conceived of and that I associate edited called We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival. It is officially being released on February 9th, 2021, after a long journey and I've been on a little bit of quarantine era hiatus from making the podcast and this is the the perfect reason to fire up the online remote recording software again and uh, have you on the show which I've been wanting to do for years so welcome thank you so much thank you so much and welcome back to the podcast airwave <laughs> it's nice to be here let me tell the listeners a little bit about you natalie west is a los angeles-based writer and educator she worked as a professional dominatrix while obtaining her phd in gender studies these days she's a professor who moonlights as a sex work bdsm and queer community authenticity consultant for film and television welcome to the show natalie thank you for having me so the reason that you are here is to talk about We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival, out February 9th from Feminist Press. Um, but before we get into talking about the process of making this book and our, our dreams for the book, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a mini wire people into that just to give people a, a taste of what you might want to talk about if, if we, I was having you on the show to sort of get into a more like sexy fetish conversation. So um, I, I sort of sprung this on you last minute, but do you have like a, a topic that you feel like you have a really unique why are people into that take on? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, thank you for allowing me not only to talk about editing, but also to talk about sexy things. <laughs> your Your expertise is broad and wide-ranging doctor yeah i mean i was thinking about you know sort of like where i would go if i if i were um just on a on a standard why are people into that episode and i think you know for me especially speaking is you know i'm, I'm one of those pro doms who like very much has like two kink lives like I have my I have my civilian kink life, um, you know, over in one area, and I have my professional kink life 
in um, in a very different area. I, I mm -hmm. love both of them, and I, I take a great deal of pleasure in both of them. But um, you know, since I'm here as Natalie, I'll give you the the kind of Natalie take. Cool. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think you know, for me, I probably that that distinction is so clear because I very much identify as a lesbian and most mm, of my mm -hmm. sex work is done with men and so those re my relationship to kink gender lines really affect like my my kinky interests that makes total sense to me and it's so interesting that you brought this up because the the concept of persona is something that I really want to talk about with the writing in this book and, and all oh, of yeah. the different contributors in the, in this book, it's going to be very relevant to this conversation. One thing that I've that I've always uh, noticed and admired that is is just really bold and upfront and out there is your lesbian identity and like because I know I know and I think you do too a lot of <laughs> queer sex workers. Yeah. <laughs> who handle their queerness in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes it's sort of sublimated. Sometimes it's a little bit of a like edgy mystery or it's kind of more sartorial or it's a little bit more like, ooh, we can explore this a little bit or like I'm going to do this as like a, a, like a show or a titillation for you or even like, oh, like I'm going to pretend to be discovering this like for your amusement um, in terms of catering to clients. Yeah, you know, and I've, I've dabbled in, in all of those different things that I, that I just listed and, you know, they're obviously all valid. Um, and you have really taken the approach of like, absolutely like your lesbian identity is like front and center in like what it means for like men to engage with you in a kink session. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're right. It really, it kind of, it runs the gamut, right? And and there are so many queer sex workers. I definitely know more queer sex workers than straight sex workers, to be perfectly honest. Totally. But Sometimes when I'm talking to a sex worker and they're, they're like, just totally straight, I'm like, right, right. That's, that's a thing. That's a thing. It's for great. I started pro-doming back in 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. It was really a consideration, like what I was going to do with my, my own sexuality, right? Like, am I going to create a sex work persona that feels very different? Like, do I want that separation? Mm -hmm. um, would I be able to sell that separation? That was one thing that I was really, you know, like, could I actually pull off straight for pay? Right? Like, <laughs> totally, would I to totally. do that? And I, I didn't feel like I could do that, but I also wanted... I don't know. I, I just like I, I was really it was something I considered a lot. And I, um, you know, at the time I was talking with with folks who were already in the scene, um, you know, like some some male subs in the scene and also my, my partner at the time who was a professional dom. And they all sort of advised me against it. They were like, look, no no like male clients are really going to be that excited about seeing somebody who's so upfront about being a lesbian dom like say you're pansexual say you're bisexual and, and you know for me i was just like you know what i'm i'm just going to like be as open about my lesbianism as possible because i'm a fe i am a female supremacist um, <laughs> in in the bedroom out of the bedroom all over the place i am yeah, yeah. and so you know it made more sense to me to just say you know like this is a part of my identity that i'm actually going to make very central to this other persona that i'm creating in the dungeon um, and through advertising and all of these things and and it was the right decision for me because it actually, I mean, the question that we started here with was, you know, why are people into 
whatever it is you're doing. And, and for me, I, I think making that decision about persona really mm. led me toward my, my niche with, within fetish and, and domination, and that's feminization. And I, have a, I think I have a, a very specific kind of approach to it that we can mm -hmm. get into. But I, I very much found that the clients who ended up seeing me or being my, my you know, nearest and dearest mm. were the clients who wanted to see me to, to become, you know, a lesbian with me in, sure. in the, the space and time of the dungeon. And so, um, so it was the right decision for me. There's so much in what you're saying that brings up the bending and blurring and refracting of reality, of, of fantasy and reality that, that happens in in sex work and in BDSM and then, you know, that when you start to like layer them on top of each other, it makes me think about how there's sort of the layer of like a client who might have a fantasy of being your lesbian girlfriend at a lesbian slumber party or something mm -hmm. like that, right? So you're like role playing that within the context of their of of the client's understanding of the quote-unquote real you that is presented in your marketing persona or the, the persona that you present to them in your in your negotiation you know in your sort of outside the the session room interactions and then there's the context of the real you and you could kind of go through queerness to an understanding of straightness like back to an illusion of queerness like in the context of one interaction one transaction with a client and your decision to just be really upfront about being a lesbian sort of collapses some of that fantasy and reality but then in some ways I think that it like creates more layers of it as well because it being very upfront and clear in marketing kind of also keeps people guessing mm -hmm. What is real? <laughs> right. <laughs> when clients are like very interested in like being transformed by you into a lesbian. I mean, I kind of also like the idea of like lesbians having the ultimate power to transform. That checks out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you know, it really, it depends on, on who, who walks through the door and like what, like what is your comfort with, um, you know, taking taking what they've come in with, right? Which is, mm. I, I want to use this time and space to be trans, let, let's just like, you know, keep it within this realm, like to be um, transformed into a lesbian. Most men have an idea of what that looks like mm. <laughs> that is very different from my lesbian existence. And, and for some of them, you know, the relationship actually does stay in that realm. It's like, okay, like, you know what lesbians do on a Saturday night. Of course we paint each other's toenails and like tickle each other with feathers. Like, you know, some, like some do, some do, some do, and some do. And then, and then there are other clients who, who very much want to um, kind of experience and approximate lesbianism that looks more like my typical Saturday night pre-COVID, which maybe is, you know, going to a leather bar, fetishizing a more like leather dyke aesthetic. Um, and, and that's definitely not going to be every client um, or yeah. every male submissive, but, um, you know, it really runs the gamut. And I've had, I've had a lot of fun, you know, playing fantasy lesbian and playing lesbian that looks more like my, my reality. Um, it really just depends on, on who walks through the door. But, um, you know, one thing that I, I definitely have seen um, 
kind of over and over again with clients who maybe have had have had a lot of experiences with um, pro doms who don't identify as queer or don't think about gender in quite the way that I do is that they they don't when they say feminization, right? Like we have in in the realm of, of professional BDSM um, and just, you know, sort of BDSM and fetish on screen of all, all kinds of screens. Mm. When we think about feminization, there there's really a range, right? Like there are people who find it really humiliating to be feminized. And, totally. and those, are, those are typically not really the clients or the submissives for me um, because I, um, you know, not to yuck anybody's yum, I don't, I don't want to, to do that whatsoever. But for me, it, it's a weird headspace to use femininity as, as a tool of humiliation, because I find it so empowering that it's just like the scene doesn't work for me. And it's very obvious. Totally. And some people are great at that. And, and you know, like, you know, do, do that whole thing. And I, I enjoy like watching it and, and think it's like very amusing and all of those things. But because you can kind of double it up, right? You can kind mm -hmm. of make fun of someone for finding it humiliating totally totally sort of that's that's always the way that that i always approached those requests yes i don't think that being a sissy slut or being femme or painting your toenails is inherently humiliating but i can sort of twist it and be like the fact that this holds so much power for you is a way that i can control you and mm -hmm. and you know and it's it, Sometimes it can be like in the context of like a correction, but mm -hmm. also sometimes it's just like, well, you're that that's like raw material that you're giving me to use to humiliate you further. Totally, totally. But I can also understand just being like, no, that doesn't resonate with me at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, like I've done dozens and dozens of scenes like that and, and they can be a lot of fun, but, um, but I think what I've what I've found is sort of you know my my place within professional domination and fetish is the the clients who have seen doms who only understand feminization in that way, and that's a lot of doms honestly, and probably not all, all of our like you know queer friends that we're <laughs> talking about here, but there are a lot of doms who who um, you know operate in that space in that space only. And I think where I found my my most beloved my most beloved submissives, they're mostly men who want to experience femininity in a much more what I actually think is a much more sort of vanilla way, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm going to touch you like I touch a woman, mm. and and I'm going to like hold space for that because you know that's that's another realm in which many men either you know, straight and, and cis identified, or, you know, I, I do have a lot of clients who, who are trans femme identified and they are not going to be probably ever in, in the kind of space of, of transitioning. And mm -hmm, so, you know, mm -hmm. kind of part of what I think I've, I've done over the years is, you know, sadly doing a lot of mitigation for transphobia mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, and the kinds mm -hmm. of limitations that, that a lot of um, folks, especially of like maybe a little bit older generation, like need to have a kind of outlet to mm -hmm. be loved and appreciated and and felt and understood as femmes um, or as, as as women in some cases for the space and time that they have for it. Um, and so, 
you know, that kind of like compassionate, I, I don't even know what to say. It's like, like I, I feel like what I've kind of like honed in on is the thing that I provide is a kind of like compassionate feminization. Do, can you describe how you touch a woman? I've had so many, um, you know, submissives who talk about the fact that they've like, they've never had their like, you know, shaved legs. Let's say that they, they're able to, to kind of shave for the evening that mm. they've never like rubbed their shaved legs along another woman's shaved legs. Right. Mm-hmm. Because like maybe mm-hmm. they can't shave their legs in their, in their relationship or whatever it is, or, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of, at least in, in my own sort of approach to more kind of corporal forms of discipline, I'm not as tender, <laughs> I'm not as tender with male submissives, <laughs> but to like be able to dole out some punishment and then to allow the kind of space for embrace, for, a, a, you know, a sort of like tenderness to enter mm. in that, that space. I know that lot, lots obviously of, of femdoms are, are kind of toggling between those, those spaces. But for me, when I'm dealing with a male submissive um, who I'm not feminizing, oftentimes I'm much more brutal, right, than if I have um, somebody submitting to me who who is in a kind of femme space where, um, you know, I just bring a lot of tenderness to it. And this is really funny because, like I said, I very much separate out my, like, lifestyle kink from my professional kink. And mm-hmm. it's, just, it's so different for me. I mean, I think the the way that I touch a woman in my my private life is probably very different and could you know be more more dominant more aggressive but I don't know I mean I love I love my like sweet little sissies who just like need some girl time and need to be like (laughs) like treated tenderly in that way um so you know I probably sound like the nicest dominatrix that ever that ever walked the face of the earth and I hope that somebody's listening to this that I've like very brutally abused (laughs) You know, Natalie, I, I feel like you, you might underestimate this, but you, you just, you have one of those voices that always kind of carries that like brutality with it, even if you're talking about being tender and nice. Good. I hope Good. you take Fantastic. that as a compliment. Fantastic. No, absolutely. <laughs> you kind of just always have like a, like a little bit of a sneer in your voice. <laughs> Which I like. Thank you. Thank you. It makes me really feel like we can, like, relate, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate that perspective so much. And I I really appreciate the compassion for the the folks who, who can really experience gender play and transgression in the context of seeing a pro dom who might, in some ways, want to self actualize through transition or as a woman in the ways that we talk about trans identity now, mm-hmm. but feel that they can't. And yes, we want everyone to self-actualize, but that's just not always a reality or possibility for, for all people. And so the fact that there is also a space for people to experience that. Like when I started out as a pro dom in 2006, like, cross-dressing or even just like the abbreviation XD mm-hmm. was just sort of like presented as like oh this is one of the things that people are interested in and that that you can offer and like in the intervening years I've sort of felt a bit like complicated about that idea um but I've I've also definitely seen clients who conceive of the fantasy of being feminized by a woman so many different ways and certainly some people who 
want like a a pro dom to like hold space for them to truly be themselves but the only way that they know how to ask for that or to seek that out is through the context of like fetish and fantasy right right and i i think that compassion for that is for what like everybody is is going through and especially the context of of their generation is is really important i don't think it's a betrayal of queerness to hold space for that in different manifestations because that that's the reality of transphobia right that that not everyone is going to be able to self-actualize or to confirm their gender in every aspect of their lives yeah and you know i wish we lived in a different world um yeah and you know i think you know a lot of the things that that hopefully I am doing in my life, not just in a, in a kind of kink realm, but in other realms, it, you know, makes more space for that for more people. But it, in the meantime, I do think that that BDSM is a way that a lot of a lot of um, folks, especially of, of maybe a little bit older generation, kind of find find their way right through mm-hmm. things like like cross dressing. Um, as as a kind of entry point into kind of figuring out who who they are, and you know, this is probably a, like a good moment to, especially because I'm I'm really not taking new clients at this point. Like I mm-hmm. I probably will will continue seeing the people I've been seeing for for as long as as we're both you know able, but I um, you know I think that it it can be really important if you are somebody who's seeking out a professional dominant to explore gender is to to think about who who you're choosing and and maybe to to um you know do a little bit of um investigating into how folks are talking about queerness and identity because mm. i think if you if you you know land in in a dungeon with a queer dom you're going to find somebody who has probably thought a lot about gender and in, in, in you know maybe in in ways that you have or haven't but um, that could be something really important because these are, you know, they they are like uh, kind of vulnerable things to explore with other folks. Like if a client knows that a dom is queer, it's because the dom has, as you as you were saying, has like taken the time to consider gender such that they would also make it known, make that information available or, or to figure out a version of that identity and that, that information that is available to the client. I mean, that also takes me back to being a pro-dom and like not really revealing anything about my private desires or my identity and feeling very like comfortable and confident in that to the degree that when I started making queer porn in the like 2010s I tore my hair out trying to figure out if I was going to use the same name Mm -hmm. because this is sort of even before we could like so quickly think about the google ability of the conflation of those two different forms of work by the way google ability and stalking is certainly something that we're going to talk about in the Mm -hmm. context of the we too book you know I had to consider like whether or not that was going to be like a turnoff for my clients or even just like something that exposed me to the point that a client might say like oh so you're queer do you have a do you have a girlfriend like yada 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 I like watched your scene on on Crashpad or whatever and it's like what I was revealing and talking about on Crashpad represented a, a different Tina Horn than the Tina Horn that I was in the dungeon and I do think not to be a total old queen but I do think that a lot of those things are like 
conflated from go for a lot of sex workers now because of the way that we market ourselves on on social media which certainly has its pros being in control of your persona but then also like asks so much of you like so much of so much of the like the raw material of like what makes you 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 know for me like the kind of throw off of the power dynamic when i know that somebody even if even if they don't experience their like online investigations as like stalking or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. harmful like if you're if you're going into a scene with somebody and they reveal to you like even after the fact right like oh mm -hmm. i know this thing about you like that really like if you if you have a boner for for power dynamic like I, there's no faster way to kill it than to be like oh yeah like i know like you know it happened to me so many times because like it, it just it is too easy to like make these connections but you know for somebody to be like oh like i know you're a graduate student how about x it's like are you kidding you you saying that gives me an absolute like body shudder memory of being in a dungeon and a client turning to me and saying so you're a writer, mm -hmm. you know, and we could say that writer is not as deeply personal a part of my identity as, oh, so you're a dyke. I felt violated by that. I do think that that was a client who knew what he was doing mm -hmm. by saying that, like trying to sort of like undermine my power, cut me down to size by like revealing mm -hmm. like, I know this about you. It And it is interesting how the role that intent plays in it, because I think a lot of a lot of people don't think that they are coming up against stalking or harassing behavior, but it can still produce that fear response. I've also had the situation where somebody has, has you know, kind of put together and figured out my legal name and, mm. and used it in, in correspondence, like after a, a session. And you know that the person who didn't use my legal name still in that in that scenario knew it right and so it's just mm. yeah it's i mean it's a it's a scary it's a scary thing um and you know it 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 does more than than ruin a scene which is probably the first way it was kind of describing it it does that but it, it does a lot a lot more so i mean i think you know it's just like operating with a with a sex worker like I mean, I guess even if you're, even if you do come across like some other aspect of their life that, that maybe isn't even as like potentially harmful as like knowing their legal name, it's just like, why don't just talk to the person based on the relationship you have with that person, right? Like, like, yeah, you follow, don't need follow to. their lead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, and it does matter that it spoils a scene because what is the point of our relationship? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, I do think that it's important to underscore, like, it is potentially violent and violating, and it also, like, is not hot. <laughs> so, like, why are, why, why are we here? Why are we talking if not to, like, get turned on? And, like, if it's gonna, if it's gonna kill the scene, then, like, we've also, like, destroyed the, the social contract between us. Yeah. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. So we are segueing brilliantly into some of the. We really got there. (laughs) I'm sure that listeners can tell from my voice. I'm going from being like, okay, um, dusting, feeling a little rusty, uh, hiatus, getting like juiced up, talking about gender and sex work. So thank you for that. Well, I'm happy to, especially because none of that, like from my contribution to the book, which is the Mm. introduction, I actually don't get to talk about my sex work really that much at all, except for the, you know, traumatic shit that happened at the beginning. So I'm happy to talk about some of the... uh, the, the fun stuff as well. I mean, maybe this is a good place to start. You know, I, I something that I come up against as someone who, as that client pointed out, is both a sex worker and a writer who writes about sex work, often nonfiction using personal anecdotes, whether it's a memoir or like personal essay context. As a writer, I'm very aware that the hard shit that has happened to me as a sex worker makes for more interesting reading and not just because of people being like morbidly interested in trauma porn or whatever um but also just because like fun like from a craft perspective conflict is more interesting than like a really nice session that went great right or like a really nice i mean you know it's we can we can talk about the the good relationships that that we've had but then also sometimes those relationships feel like well, I don't really want to put this out there as as much. I don't really want to expose this. This is actually something that's like not a part of my art or my uh, or my politics. This is like something that is like between me and this and this other person. So mm-hmm. I don't want to like you know blow up their spot. What you represent about sex work in your intro to We Too essays on sex work and survival is is a lot of hard stuff both with clients and then also like dealing with stigma in the larger world. And maybe as, as a fellow writer, you can, you can speak to that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just on a a kind of general level, even beyond sex work writing, I think that, you know, people come to nonfiction a lot of times for the hard shit, right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. You know, to find, to find, you know, folks who are going through something that might be similar to things that they're working through in their own life or just Mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, have that sort of like resonant moment with somebody who's going through something totally different. But like there's something from maybe like 
that that cancer narrative that's going to like resonate with the you know very different struggle that that I'm going through with X right that there's something totally. about nonfiction that I think that we we go to to watch folks sometimes struggle and overcome or sometimes just like be in it like with another person who has a story like I don't know I think that I think that nonfiction does that and you know if you're looking through any kind of like memoir section in a bookstore you are going to find a lot of hard story yeah the idea is that is is that it illuminates something about what it means to be human and Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes that can be something heartwarming and functional but a lot of the time like friction creates energy yeah and I think you know with with this collection um, specifically and we can talk about like what what we as as folks who've worked on this project want want readers to get out of it Mm. but I think that you know with with non-sex working readers I hope that, you know, even though a lot of these, these stories and, and mine included are difficult, um, I think that, you know, seeing how other kinds of workers are negotiating violence mm. in the workplace or negotiating like breaches of consent. Um, unfortunately, like this is not just a sex work story, right? Like mm-hmm, to be able mm-hmm. to, to kind of, you know, find another story that maybe is going to, to speak to, to somebody else's or to inspire them to think about it differently right there's a lot of a lot you can do by like interacting with somebody else's story of of you know breaches of consent or violence i think but um you know with with uh, sex worker readers i think having having those stories to interact with can be a kind of point of camaraderie i know for me like having like real life spaces which we don't unfortunately have many of anymore to talk right. with other sex workers about the shit that happens um yeah has been like I, I i don't i don't know that i could have been a sex worker for a decade without the space to do that to listen and to share and so i think that you know like these stories have so many different functions for different kinds of readers. I mean, that resonates with me. I uh, would never have been able to do the work for as long as I have, and I would not be able to to engage with the work in nonfiction and journalism and media and fiction, even in the comic book world, if it wasn't for community. And sometimes it is reading something maybe a tweet maybe an essay in an anthology where where someone names something that happened to them as harassment for example and then you're able to look at an experience that you have or 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 when an experience is happening to you you're able to like name it in the moment as harassment and you know if somebody else is dismissing the use of that word to be able to feel anchored by what a fellow sex worker has said and be like, no, like this, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And also like, here's, here's a path of, of healing or here's something that I can do about it. Um, here's, here's a, here's a way, here's a way to fight it. Or here is a way to heal, or here's a, a way to, to be there for other people who are experiencing the same thing and to heal in that way. So do you want to talk about the conception, if you will, of this book and the journey of We Too and how it 
came to be this book that I have. This book, you can hear it on the mic, <laughs> flopping around a physical, a physical non-virtual thing that I can flip through and smell. It's here. So how did it get here? Spring of 2018, I wrote a piece in the sort of what felt to me like the hashtag MeToo movement had been in its resurgence. It felt like a very long time because I, I sort of, you know, obviously watched this hashtag and I watched the kinds of grappling with sexual violence at workplaces, you know, kind of across media and then in other industries. And I kept wanting to talk about it in terms of sex work. And I just found myself like, I mean, I had like dozens of drafted tweets mm. that I just felt like I couldn't send. Mm. And then I watched other sex workers and, and, and folks, you know, in, in journalists have, have kind of covered this and, and some of it actually is, is cited in my introduction to We Too. You know, I watched sex workers on Twitter um, make, uh, you know, like hashtag Me Too accusations about things that happened to them at work. And then I, I watched the, you know, just utterly disgusting backlash um, mm. in the comments. It felt like a long period of time of, of difficult sort of just reading on the internet. Yeah. And then I wrote this piece that eventually um, made it into Salon um, that was titled What a Dominatrix know, Knows About um, Hashtag Me Too. Mm. And so I wrote that piece and it felt really monumental for me um, because for a few reasons and we can get into like because this is something that you'll hear echoed again and again in the book around things like persona and like what do you allow yourself to say mm. um, you know that was a moment for me it was the first time that I had written about sex work um, publicly that was not just like here's like this like really fun thing that happened at the leather bar, right? Like I hadn't totally. written, like I'd written, I've written some like, uh, uh, you know, kind of like fluffy pieces for like auto straddle or like, you know, some stuff here and there, but like my writing life and my kink life had been pretty separate up until that point. And definitely in terms of talking about violence, mm -hmm. um, it had been very separate. And so that essay for me, you know, was scary. Um, but after I wrote it, I felt like I want to give other people the space to do this too. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I want to kind of, yeah, I don't know, be able to do this in, in community in some way. Um, because I, I sort of, you know, I heard from people, you know, who would say like, I read this piece. Thank you so much for writing it. Like so much of, uh, I, I see so much of the shit that's happened to me in that essay. And, um, and yeah, so like from there, I was like, well, maybe this is something that, that we need as a community. Mm -hmm. So I put together a, a book proposal. I had never done that before. I've never like written for or edited an anthology. This was very much my, my first, uh, first go at the rodeo with that. But I put together an, a proposal and I reached out to a few people. You were one of them and just people who were kind of like, either in my orbit really intimately or people who I just like had connections with, like maybe I think that you and I met at like a BDSM kind of convention conference sort of thing. Right. And so it's yeah, like people totally. that I kind of like knew, but like, and I knew were writers that was like sort of important because I knew if I was putting together a book proposal, 
if I were going to get anybody to look at it, they were probably going to be like, okay, well, who's involved, right, besides you? Because Mm -hmm. for me, I I was just kind of getting started in this world. Unfortunately, there's, you know, as you know, so much gatekeeping in, in publishing that I knew that having my kind of vanilla life be in academia while I would never like as an academic just be like I'm gonna come in here as an academic and write about sex work and it usually annoys me to no end when people feel like they can do that and they've never done sex work oh yeah you know like having that credential I think it it did help me like get past some of the gatekeepers where I'm like okay well like maybe you'll listen to me because like I have a PhD but also like you should listen to me because I'm a sex worker and so I was very aware of like how how that would work out. I was in talks with a press before Feminist Press that was like another sort of independent um, press and it actually was like pretty shitty. It was a shitty experience. Like they yeah. they kind of treated me the way that you maybe would expect you know, to be treated as a sex worker in publishing. And so it was actually on the day that that dissolved when I was like, you know what, I can't work with these people. It was absolutely on that day that um, Feminist Press like miraculously answered my query and (laughs) said like, it was just, it was crazy. It was like, I sent an email and I got an email. And I always thought like, you know, my, my top choice to get this book out into the world would be Feminist Press. And I think I queried them and like followed up like three times, didn't hear, didn't hear. And then I got the email saying like, yeah, let's have a call. And yeah, we, we took it from there. But that, I think all of that was, was back in, in 2018. And so, yeah, it's been a, a bit of a journey. I remember being at the Pleasure Chest in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm teaching a class, I think it was my enema class. It was. <laughs> that you came to, you know, just like a bunch of us went down the street to get food and cocktails, which remember spontaneously doing stuff. Um, that was fun. <laughs> Can you believe it? I actually think I, I, I um, shoved like five different people into my uh, tiny little Ford Mustang convertible that evening. I remember yes, you guys I remember riding that. on the road with me. I was like, oh, can you fit in my car? I don't know. Can you imagine fitting five people into any car right now? I'm like creaming my pants just thinking <laughs> right. about it. Honestly, I, I like have a new, I have a new fetish for <laughs> cramming, cramming people into small spaces. Spontaneously. <laughs> Spontaneously, yes, exactly. And yes, we were at like a diner or something and uh, and you started telling me about the project and it was a very Survivors Against SESTA time, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, speaking uh, a lot of like organizing and movement building against FOSTA SESTA and I was feeling like I was juggling so much literary work. I knew that getting involved in a, a lot of the grassroots organizing that a lot of my comrades and community members were involved in was going to burn me out. So when you presented the project to me and, you know, we kind of discussed the idea of how I could be involved, the the idea of like associate editing in the form of doing outreach to members of my community who might want to contribute and then maybe like doulaing their pieces and facilitating getting reprint rights from pieces that had been published on Tits and Sass and Sledis was a way that I felt like I could contribute to the discourse and the conversations about all of these topics in a way that was less likely to 
to burn me out. Um, and so I was really glad that you wanted to collaborate. Probably many of us have had those experiences where you like start taking something on. And I, I definitely like the kind of person where I'm like, I have no fucking clue how to do this. Here I go. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's like very. It's it's something that has has like probably helped me and also bit me in the ass many times in my life. Um, and I'll just keep doing it. But um, but yeah, I kind I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm trying to do this. I have you know I'm having some success. I got I got the press on board. I did that yeah, part. But like it's huge. But I have you know like I I just, I felt like I need I definitely need somebody to to kind of go through this with me and also somebody who I mean obviously with this podcast right like you have a network of of sex worker friends and colleagues that's that's definitely just it's wider than mine right like my my world is very LA based um it always has been and um and yeah we we needed this project to be diverse in so many different kinds of ways you know, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I was like super, super thankful that you could come in and, and lend, um, you know, expertise and also, you know, just like collaboration and contact. And, and so very grateful for that, you know, and continue to be very, very grateful for that um, as we move into promoting the thing. Yeah, my God, it, it really happened. Not even a plague could stop it. Uh, <laughs> I, and I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, actually, about being mindful that your status as an academic with a PhD in gender studies, the fact that you're mindful of the power that gives you the access that gives you the privilege that gives you the 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 ticket, the 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 password through the gatekeeping, right? Um mm-hmm. that that gives you and and the the fact that you are also framing yourself in the context of the, you know, the the editor of this project, the, you know, the author, the coordinator of, of this project as a whole, linking your sex work status, your out sex work status to that more respectable part of you. Like both of those things are true, but there's going to be so many different kinds of reactions to those realities as credentials in different spaces, right? Like if you, if you went to like a sex work organizing meeting and you said i'm an an academic writing like putting together an anthology about sex work people would (laughs) rightfully so people would be guarded people would be skeptical people would maybe say get the fuck out of here right right?" or like fuck you pay me right um not that academics are uh paid as they should be but but the idea of like oh you you want to um go on safari into our world in order to say something about it from a remove of respectability is like obviously something that um, most sex workers learn to be critical of pretty early on. And, but then being in the world of, of publishing and being out about your work as a pro dom and your status as a sex worker, it means that you are leveraging that privilege to say, Hey, here is just one example of someone who like get you a editor that can do both right Mm -hmm. like here is an example of the fact that like these two statuses are not mutually exclusive that is like literally who you are and I think that that does a lot for people to be able to point to a book like this and say like sex workers did this it definitely was something that I had to think about a lot if I was going to like 
take the risk of the project. Like, you know, like it really had to be worth it to me because, you know, at that point, like I had finished graduate school, I had dealt with like unending anxiety and fear that I would Mm. be able to get through the program and, and get through in the closet because I was partially closeted through a lot of it. And I kind of, I narrowly escaped (laughs) that like really daunting thing that like, uh, you know, it's, it's not just academia, right? It's like folks who are sex working people who then go on or are, are also engaged in any other form of, of industry you know, like stigma is real, um, backlash yes. is real. And discrimination is real. I mean, yeah. sex workers are not a protected class, so... Right. And, you know, like, and, and power just, like, works in, in all kinds of ways, right? But, like, you know, again, it's, like, it, it's, it's risky, but also it felt to me worth it. It's, um, and I mean, who knows? Like, maybe I still will. <laughs> maybe I will lose my job over this book. I don't know. I really hope not. Um, and I really don't think so, because I think if anybody actually interacts with this book, they're going to understand why it's important and why it's worth a risk. On the other hand, I think not not doing this project when I felt called to it mm. and not uh, leveraging the power that I that I knew I had. I mean, like, look, Feminist Press is you know, they, they want to do the the kind of activist work that, that the book does. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, having a PhD to get you through the the door, uh, is helpful. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like for me, it's like, I, I want this book to get sex workers bylines and Mm -hmm. it's already doing that. And I, you know, like, that that's what that's what I wanted to do with it but you're but you're totally right on the other hand I mean I like probably like the shittiest thing that anyone has has said to me in relationship to this book was another sex worker who was like oh yeah and look this is not when when folks pick up the book and read it they you know it's not a bunch of like academic sex workers who are you know whatever it's like Mm. we this is a book like that really runs runs the gamut in terms of the voices who are included and and I think we're both really proud of that. But, you know, I definitely totally. had someone say to me, like, oh, yeah, like, you know, sex worker writers club, like, we do sex work so we can write about it. And I'm like, you know what? Like, read the fucking book. Like, that's not what this Dude, is. Dude, but that that pain is real. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And Well, it's because it's a product of the gatekeeping, right? Because, like, sex workers who haven't had those kinds of access points and and beyond that of course like sex workers who are not indoor workers sex workers mm-hmm. who are not white sex workers who are not cis right like there are so many sex workers who don't get heard yeah that it makes total sense when like you hear that a book is coming out about sex work you're like well, I know what voice that's going to be the stigma that we're discussing in terms of like just our fucking bios as co-editors of this book and the stigma that we're talking about both in terms of that sort of horizontal violence of of fellow sex workers making assumptions about what this book is and then related like all of the ways that the book will be received by sex workers and non-sex workers alike that stigma that discrimination that violence is a part of what this book is about. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you can talk to me about something that I feel is one of the 
most powerful things about this book, one of the strengths of this book, that you really do have to read it to fully experience, to, to, to fully understand, is the diversity not only of identities in terms of the voices that we're hearing, but also the ways that consent works and breaks down within this umbrella concept of the sex industry. There's like 20 some pieces in this book by 20 some contributors. And it is not, this is not 20 some essays about being raped at work. Now, that is not to diminish the reality of and the importance of stories in people's own voices about those experiences. But I do also think that reducing the issue of consent at the workplace, which is what Me Too is about, right? It's not just about consent. It's about consent and work. Mm -hmm. to, to, to reduce it to being about one kind of violation, I think, is the same kind of reduction that I know that I inherited growing up of like what sexual assault looked like, right? Which is the like boogeyman in the bushes as opposed to what we know to be true, which is more of the call coming from inside the house. Yeah, yeah. Can you speak to like the different, the different ways that, that consent manifests in the different stories in this book? Ultimately, a lot of these stories are about exploitation that can and does intersect with a lot of different forms of, of labor under capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's refracted through sexuality when we're mm -hmm. talking about sex work. Let me give you an example. Maybe this is the best way to sort of think about this. There's a story in the book that's um, being told by... Uh, stripper who talks about how the DJ at the yes. club is, you know, is like interested in her or like wants to get to know her outside of work. And, you know, when she stops flirting with him, he starts playing like playing shitty songs, shitty like songs. undanceable songs. Right. Th that that is going to affect her money. Right. It's, yes. That's her bottom line. And so like, that's a story about sexual harassment in some ways at work because it is about sex work, right? Um, it's also just harassment at work. It's also exploiting somebody and, and, and sort of, you know, affecting their, you know, their wallet, right? Like it's all of these different things. It's also things. this like passive aggressive cruelty. Right, right. I'm so glad you chose this example because I think it is a really good example of the kind of thing that like, if you know the feeling of being at work and having your blood run cold, it's kind of the like death by a thousand cuts of like microaggressions, right? Where you're just like, this is going to contribute to my burnout because I just have to constantly like steal myself. Yeah. And, and you know, and that is like, again, when you think about thing when you think about readership like obviously like a civilian reader of this book is going to be like wow i that's like probably a way that that they maybe haven't thought about sexual harassment at work or harassment mm -hmm. at work or any of these things but also it's like but it is right like who hasn't been in a job like where they get like uh you know a, a bunch of different forms of work kind of just like dumped on them because 
they had some interpersonal bullshit with like a boss or you know whatever it's like it's like these are these are stories that happen these are stories of exploitation that happen across industries and and so i think you know that's one thing that you're that you're going to see in the book you know even just picking up the book and flipping through the table of contents which you to give people a sense of the scope of the book you've organized into a section on stigma, a section on the workplace, a section on the state, on family, on survival, and on healing. The stations that <laughs> sex, worker, sex workers must pass through. And just looking through here, you know, I mean, first of all, I think this is a really important text for... It's, it's a real 2021 concept of sex work as a political identity, uh, you know, as a, as a labor identity, as well as a cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And sex work is both, you know, about like emphasizing the labor as much as the sex, but also bringing together people who do full service, escorting, whatever word they use to identify, hooking, prostitution, and then the work that I know is sort of both yours and my orientation, if you will, <laughs> working in professional BDSM and fetish and fantasy, and then porn, camming, and all different kinds of technology-mediated sex work, stripping. Of course, there's all kinds of hybrids of all of these yeah, as well. I know, I know. Yeah, I mean, we're all we're probably always leaving something out when we like list off these these things. But I think you know, like that's a good a good sort of coverage of of all the the different forms of labor that that you'll see in the book. And just looking through here, I know that there are stories in here of really scary on-the-job violence, working the streets or working out of a car. I am seeing racism and specifically anti-Semitism. I'm seeing discrimination of people who have families, whether they are parents or are receiving the discrimination from their parents or from their spouses or from their partners, you know, and then in some cases, like there's more instructive pieces on like how to be supportive, how to facilitate healing, how to build community. I'm seeing stories from people who are currently incarcerated. I'm seeing stories about stripper labor strikes, stories of people writing about other sex workers, high profile, you know, calling out of their rapists on social media. My story that's in this book, Good Faith, is about a very weird blurring of BDSM and sex work power dynamics that I connected back to my family's background in a cult. There's another story, interestingly enough, I'm sure you noticed this um, from, uh, from a friend of mine, that takes place at the same place and is actually a positive story about that mm-hmm. place, which mm-hmm. I think is really, I, I think that that juxtaposition and the fact that they're in the same section is very powerful. I am seeing a story about December 17th, which is the international day to end violence against sex workers that also contains a story of you know, what we used to call the, like, model mayhem GWC, just guy with camera, just, like, some fucking dude that you connect with on a model website because you need pictures to promote yourself, and then all of a sudden they're, like, 
blurring the lines. There's also a story in this book about someone who was asked in her capacity as a pro-dom to facilitate healing for someone who confessed to being a rapist and like how she dealt with her role in terms of emotional labor, in terms of power dynamic, in terms of what it means to facilitate a fantasy of consent violation, which is something that we do all the time in the sex industry. And you write about that as well. Your whole thing about like, my job is to tell men no, right? Mm -hmm. But like even the fan, even being turned on by a woman saying no is something that happens because of the dynamics of rape culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the fact that your prompt was respond to me too in a way that me too has not given you the space to respond as a sex worker like organically we get all these different kinds of stories i think speaks to the complexity not only of the issue of consent within the sex industry but also the way that the sex industry is a microcosm of both sex and work in other spaces and the fact that people who are grappling politically intellectually academically socially personally with both sex and work should be looking to us for support and guidance and strategies and community anyway that's my rant about what i think is great about this book that we made a lot of the sections have different relationships to the idea of the workplace right but when you look yeah. at the section on the workplace you're going to see a lot of stories that that are from folks who do sex work that is not specifically criminalized so if you think about the strip club or you think about the porn set right like that kind of i think that some of what you see there might map more easily onto what folks who are not sex working but have have consumed a lot of like hashtag me too stories would think that they're going to like find in a, in a book like this. But I think that the stories that you get can really expand. You mentioned the one story about the model mayhem sort of like photographer who ends up assaulting the writer. And it wasn't actually until even reading that story that I could access the story that I ended up writing as the introduction because I wrote the introduction after I, I, you know, worked on the editing of the book. And so it was like reading that story really put me in touch with my own experience of being, um, you know, quote unquote, trained as a, as a pro dom by somebody mm -hmm. who was like absolutely, you know, exploiting and, and extracting labor from me in ways that that just actually were quite harmful. And then ended up retaliating against and then you. Ended, yeah, exactly. And ended up being somebody who, you know, wielded, it wielded the power of having those experiences with me um, in really violent ways. And I think for myself, it's like I didn't see the idea of the workplace or something that happened to me at work. Like before reading that story and some other stories that, uh, for, from folks who are porn performers who had similar experiences in the book, I'm like, you know, rethinking my own experiences and kind of expanding my own idea of like, what, what was my workplace? Cause it wasn't always just mm. in the dungeon and, yeah. you know, exploitation or breaches of consent, um, do look different in, in a lot of different contexts. And so, you know, like that's something that really, maybe even I've, I've kind of realized after the, <laughs> the book was all put together. There is always a 
concern from, and this is truly from any marginalized group, that negative stories, to put it in the broadest term possible, mm -hmm. is quote unquote fuel for the opposition, mm -hmm. right? Which then leads to this pressure that we either have to be empowered happy hookers or otherwise we are damaged goods or we're brainwashed by the patriarchy or yada 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 and um this this double bind that sex workers um find ourselves in and so knowing that most of the audience of this podcast is very familiar with <laughs> with this with this is you know is a part of this discourse already whether they're sex workers or or allies what what are your what are your thoughts on what it means to put out a book you know going back to this idea of like we're realizing that we need that we need or want to or have the opportunity to tell stories of shitty things that have happened to us or the or to articulate the ways that people have been shitty to us in a way that is specific to our experience as sex workers like what does it mean to put all of these stories together in this collection. When I started reading the the work that came in after the call, it, it weighed on me. Of course it weighed on me, right? It weighs on anybody, anybody who's conditioned to speak in this culture as the happy hooker. To violate that, because in some ways it is, like, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. It's like, you know, we, we're all sort of, you know, working toward decrim. We're working toward, you know, yes. like decreasing stigma. Yeah. And, and sort of like, you know, like, oh, like, can I, can I really say what's going on? Because if I, if I say that, you know, even that I had a shitty day, it's like, well, shouldn't we just eliminate your day then? <laughs> right? Like, like, why don't you do something else so that you're not doing that thing that's producing a shitty day? Um, first of all, I think this is like the kinds of conditions that you see in this book are not conditions that are that are exclusive to sex workers. And I think that totally. actually the Me Too movement, like for all of its flaws, one thing that I think that movement did is it showed just how fucked up work is for all kinds of folks in all kinds of industries. And so like, don't tell me that like sex workers have it like, that we're the only ones who have this problem to deal with, right? Like this is a problem of, of power and misogyny don't forget capitalism and right. you know <laughs> right. the way that capitalism is inextricable from white supremacy for example right exactly and so a lot of sex workers are working in in criminalized labor markets right like when we're thinking about escorting we're thinking about sometimes prodoming like oftentimes prodoming is considered like this gray area like i don't feel like i'm mm. in a fucking gray area like if if a cop walked in on one of my sessions i don't think i would feel like i was in a gray area of the Dude, law and also can i interject and say mm -hmm. that just to remind people who may not be aware of this that there isn't a clear differentiation between the forms of sex work that are technically legal such as for example posting your nudes on OnlyFans or um, or posting sex videos on OnlyFans. I have a I had a friend just this week. This is January 2021, who applied and was approved for housing right here in America. Who after being approved for this like apartment application was then rejected, and the 
hand-waving, dismissing explanation for rescinding their housing application was that once they actually took a closer look at where their checks were coming from, they saw that one of the places that they make their income is OnlyFans. A legal, and by the way, also like, at this point, like, very trendy and well-known form of, like, making porn. It's and celebrity and all of these And other. celebrity, abso- absolutely. I hear these stories all the time, but this is just a specific example of something that happened to my friend, like, this week of being discriminated against. Again, sex worker is not a protected class. And not being able to secure the housing that she thought that she had secured because of the legal work that she does. And people can just do that. And that is, that's a material concern, you know? So that doesn't, that may not feel like the same form of harassment and stigma as a client reaching into your panties in the middle of a session, which has happened to me. And you talk about it happening to you in this book. It's part of a continuum. And that, again, I think is part of the like power of this book is like integrating all of that and like letting people know that like that stigma affects all of us. It's not as if we're like fighting on two different, uh, you know, battlefields that like criminalization is one and that has to do with the cops and the state over here and that stigma is like over in some other realm. Like you can't like you can't extract one from the other. Um, I do think that we have we have to have decrim if we're ever going to imagine a real eradication of stigma. But these these are things that like even though this this is a book of 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 memoir essays essentially it's not it's not an argument right for decriminalization it operates under those logics because until we have a decriminalized workforce and a, and a destigmatized workforce there can be no worker rights right like there cannot be access to labor law for sex workers all, all of this, I think, is, is uh, under the same umbrella. Ashley Page is our, our very first contributor to the book, and mm-hmm. I love the way that Ashley puts it as a um, coming up to, like, a bubble with, like, a needle and saying, like, yeah. am I going to do this? Like, you have this idea, this, like, kind of picture of perfection of, like, what a sex worker is because we've had to tell this story about ourselves as happy and empowered and, and powerful for so long in order to just gain like entry into having a voice, especially within feminist movements, I think, right? Or progressive movements to say like, um, you know, like you don't need to rescue me, you don't need to save me, I'm empowered. But you know what, at the end of the day, like we we do need comrades, um, you know, within and without, and from within and from without sex work. And I do think part of what this book can do especially because it's coming out with feminist press and I think it will reach mainstream feminists. Um, I'm not as afraid of like, you know, like having to lie to them still and to say like, you know, like we're doing fine because like the truth of the matter is like we put out a call to sex worker writers to tell us their stories and like these are the stories, right? And so like it's not possible I think anymore to kind of like I understand especially, you know, coming out of like the intersections of like sex worker rights activism and sex positive feminism like I understand like why we had to tell the stories that we do and you know I think even interpersonally like I don't want to tell my mom like the shitty things that happen at work right um but I don't 
know that we can go on like that forever because like we've come so far, but we've only come so far, right? And like, I don't think it's a strategy that's just gonna continue to work um, if we actually want to see change. And I think, you know, I, I want to kind of write from a place where I feel like feminism is moving away from being sex worker exclusive. And like, if we've gotten to this place where mainstream feminism will listen to us, like, I think that we have to kind of level with mainstream feminists as well and non-sex working feminists to say like, okay, but we have work to do. Like, are you going to get on board? Um, and I hope the answer is yes. And I hope the, the book does some of that work. Yeah, I, I think that it does. And it just goes back to this idea of like people getting so confused about the fact that the personas that we put out online and like our, our sort of our public personas are often what we are marketing to clients and then academics or journalists or pundits conflate that story that we're telling for work with our personhood and and then sometimes like like in some ways as i've talked about we're more in control of that narrative than ever before because we can make our own social media profiles and yeah we have to think about how it's being received and how we're marketing but i do think that there are there are more possibilities of marketing yourself both as available for fantasy and existing as a multi-dimensional person mm-hmm. and you know posting simultaneously like here's my nudes here's where you can pay me and here is a link to an article about sex work politics or like here is a poster about a protest that i am attending and like that that synthesis is is more is more possible now but i also again think that that is something that is really special about this book is that people are writing under those names like i was talking about way back in the beginning of this episode about like deciding like what what raw material of me is part of the tina horn character people are writing as their personas as their characters which in many cases they've very carefully constructed for themselves and their names that they've made for themselves and and worked under for in some cases decades and then they're telling these incredibly real and vulnerable stories i mean they're behind the scenes stories for the most part right they're like mm-hmm. behind the curtain they're off the clock stories they're they're after people have logged off they're at the end of shifts they're backstage um and and sometimes not sometimes they are taking place in the workplace and as you pointed out there's lots of different manifestations of the workplace for sex workers and most laborers these days, I think. Mm-hmm. But the contributors to this book have done something, it really exemplifies strength through vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? That we are all saying, this is a part of what our experience is and we deserve to be taken seriously in all of the dimensions of what we've experienced and who we are. Right, which is, you know, at the end of the day, it's asking readers to extend to sex workers humanity, right? Because like nobody is is 
you know, just empowered and not exploited or vice versa, right? Like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the, the, the people who are writing in this book are, are taking a risk of, yeah, that kind of like very vulnerable glimpse into their humanity, right? And, in, 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 you know, the kind of spectrum that's presented there. And I, I, I don't think that that's something that, that sex workers have necessarily been allowed to do in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, whether that's the ways that, that we're portrayed by anti-trafficking NGOs as victims or, oh, you know, in like, you know, like sex positive, like blog spheres of like the late 90s as like, <laughs> you know, like the happiest, uh, the happiest, most sexually fulfilled people on the planet, right? Like, yeah, or in or in fiction, in, in film and television, right, as as like, just the same old tropes over and over again, like as as metaphors for other things that people want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, like, recognizing that there are reasons to pursue sex work that are not about enjoyment. There are also reasons to pursue sex work that are not about exploitation. And like, you have to just like, be okay with ambiguity to to (laughs) grapple with, I think, you know, not just what the book presents, but like what sex work is. Hell yeah, that is an amazing note to start to wind down on. So what are your dreams for the life of this book? First and foremost, my, my dreams for the life of this book are that the sex workers who want it get a hold of it. Um, and that's not that's not just like sex workers who are in, in all, all forms of work that we do, but also sex workers who are incarcerated. Um, I would, I, I just, I want sex workers to read the book. Um, and so, and, and to, yeah. you know, like find what we might need there. I, you know, like I've, like a, a lot of this book is difficult for me. Um, and a lot of it is exactly what I needed to read. And, and yeah, so just being able to go to it and find a story that, that, you know, maybe lightens the load or complicates your ideas about the things that you've been through or like whatever you need from it. I, I want sex workers to read it. I would love if this book changed some minds from within feminism. Like, I'm very happy that this is coming out with the feminist press because I do think that they have a readership that needs it. I want this book to convince folks who are in positions of power in terms of policy making to, to listen to us and to, to recognize like the real spectrum of experiences that sex workers have. And at the end of the day, if it can, you know, if it can change people's minds to to work as allies toward decrim and to work as allies toward um, destigmatization, then I think um, then it will have done its work. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I just want different kinds of readership for the book, and I also want the folks who contributed to the book to just be proud of it. Like I want I want the folks who contributed to like see it out in the world and to like be proud that they have that that byline and and that they can share their story with other people. Well, that is going back to what we were talking about with leveraging privilege and the fact that like, yeah, you and I are white, cis, queer, pro-doms who both have a background in academia, a background in literature and publishing, uh, who like in so yeah in some ways we we do fit the the eye roll stereotype that people would have of like we're the people who get a platform to 
talk about sex work and the politics of sex work, but I think that your instinct to make this an anthology so that we could include as many different voices as possible was a really powerful one. And I'm, I'm really glad that there are so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of stories in this book. I don't even know if I, I recognized at the time like why I thought these essays should not be arguments, right? That they shouldn't be like, I'm going to write like a manifesto against, you know, the cops, right? There, this book is a fucking manifesto against the cops. And it happens totally, but through... It, but through the power of storytelling, which hopefully involves empathy. Right, 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 right. And I think, you know, I don't know if I even knew it at the time, like why that was my, my impulse. I mean, besides the fact that like, that's what I read and that's what I write. Um, but I... I think when we're asked to make an argument for one for our existence, which is just fucked up, like I'm tired of doing that. Like I'm tired of making an argument that like I, that sex workers should be treated as humans or sex workers should be treated as workers. You know, we're often like called upon to reduce ourselves, but I think our stories are not reductive and, you know, kind of giving space to allow our stories to, exist together and also like you know have the kind of care put into them that that they do work as just fantastic narrative yeah I think that you know like the the book ultimately does that and you know from my editorial brain not just my like sort of like sex worker or political brain but from my editor brain I'm really happy that I think these stories are just they're really great stories and they, the narrative function is really great in them. Absolutely. I completely agree. So now that everyone is just like peeing their fucking pants, wanting to read this book that is a tough hang, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. but you know, a worthwhile tough hang, uh, where can people access this tough hang? <laughs> there are moments of levity in the book. The book is funny. The book is is sexy at times. The book is like colorful and beautiful. And there are moments of community and friendship and love and healing and like all, all kinds of, of, of good stuff. But where can people buy it? So folks can, can pick up a copy of this um, from the Feminist Press directly from their website. Um, that's feministpress.org. Um, and also just to note that, um, you know, the royalties that would typically go to contributors or editors for this book are all going to um, swap behind bars. So, yes. um, you know, you can also, big deal. also know that, you know, this is a, yeah, Feminist Press is a nonprofit press, and, and so a portion of the proceeds are also going to, to another um, organization that is near and dear to many of us. Um, mm. So that's great. Um, you should, you know, after, after February, so you can go ahead and, and pre-order it. Um, you can pre-order it before February 9th from Feminist Press. Um, you know, also just like I'd endorse like bookshop.org or your, your local um, bookstore for that as well. Um, and yeah, Feminist Press, also you can find them on Twitter at Feminist Press and, and they're they're pushing out a lot of content related to the book. Yeah, they've been very supportive of this book and have really listened to to us and to the contributors and I appreciate that mm -hmm. about them. And, and yeah, I also wanna put in a plug as somebody who has had books with small presses um, for a long time, it really does make a difference. And this is so much more true in pandemic times to 
pick up the phone and call or, you know, maybe email or maybe tweet out, just contact your local bookstore and let them know that you're interested in this book because not to get too into it, but part of the way that the direct market works is that bookstores order books if they know that people are going to buy them. And, you know, especially with a topic that can can be alienating to some people or people can be like, oh, this is really niche or, oh, this makes me uncomfortable or whatever, like really calling up people and saying, hey, like there's an audience for this, there's a market for this, I want this book, other people are going to want it. It really does make a difference. It can mean that the booksellers know, okay, well, we're ordering this book for these people, so we're going to order more in the future or we're going to order more books like it in the future. So, um, that that really does make a difference. So if you if you have the time and the ability and the means to to contact your local bookstores and also like let's keep bookstores alive, man. Yeah, totally, totally. And I you know, I would say too like if you if you are broke right now and you can't afford to buy a book, like call your library and say like hey, like a local public library like how about put this on your purchase list because um, libraries also will, will, will publish or will, sorry, purchase um, copies of books if they know that their patrons um, want to get their hands on them. Oh yeah, and speaking of libraries, if you are an academic, <laughs> we've been saying so many different kinds of things about academics today, but if you are an academic, um, you know, assigning this book is also really good for the book. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Please, please, uh, let's get this into gender studies classrooms. Students absolutely. are going to love these stories, I think, and learn so much from these, these stories. Well, Natalie, is there anything else that you want to say about We Too, Essays on Sex Work and Survival, out February 9th, 2021, from Feminist Press, edited by you and associate edited by Tina Horn? Say moi. <laughs> Um, no, I just thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And um, yeah, I can't I can't wait for other folks to hold these books in their hands like we are right now. It's, it's super exciting. Me too. Ooh, yeah, hear that. Oh, sound design. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy about it. And I, it's been really nice talking to you about about the book, you know, we've been working together remotely on this for um, many years and really just sort of being able to dig into it together on my show has been, uh, has been a pleasure. So thank you for taking the time. Absolutely, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you on the internet? They can find out about me on Twitter. I mean, I, admittedly, I'm not tweeting about really anything except the book. <laughs> so <laughs> so perfect. More about the book. Yeah. What else would anyone um, want to know about? Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Ms. Natalie West. So that's M.S. Natalie West. Wonderful. Well, I wish you lots of comfort and lots of masked up outdoor time and let's launch this book into the world and transform everything forever yeah thank you yeah can't wait if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.